Welcome, past, present, and soon-to-be D&D players to D&D 101, a first-level course. I'm Max Hendricks. And I'm Aga. You got last it. Last name pending. Can no I... last name. Wait. No last name. All right. Well, now that we have your title out of the way, this episode we're going to be talking about non-traditional D&D. Now, I wanted to talk about something fun for the last one. And fun. Well, as fun as Dungeons and Dragons can be for a geek like me. Fun. D&D has found itself in many different shapes over the years, and I'd like to discuss them. So this episode, I actually got some interviews from some folks uh, that I'm friends with. (laughs) Sorry, go on. I got some interviews um, from some friends of mine that do some non-traditional D&D. And we're actually going to talk about some of the ways that D&D has shaped throughout the years. As far as non-traditional D&D games go, there are things like, I'm going to call it alt D&D. D&D, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Perfect. No, No, it's wrong. It's wrong. Okay. Well, this would be using or changing the rules of the game to have a different experience than just your classic D&D adventure game. You could do this by placing the game in different worlds. You could create worlds from different media or from your imagination while using D&D's character creation, its mechanics, and spells. I did this recently when I created and ran a Scooby-Doo D&D one-shot for my friends, where they each played as a member of the mystery gang. The gang! The gang! You could have different kinds of games, like mysteries, using D&D to create puzzles and mystery scenarios using the rules and mechanics of the game. Like my friend Rita's mystery game. I talked with her a little bit about this earlier, so let's hear it from her. Hi, I'm Rita, and sometimes I tell jokes. I run a series of one-shots within the same canon, but what distinguishes those one-shots from regular D&D campaign stuff is that they're run as mysteries and not as adventures. I really don't think the, one, the fighting style's not suited to my players or the stories I'm telling usually. So it usually becomes about either magic things happening or them taking actions to procure something. I always found that um, the way that Dungeons and Dragons was written, the time it took to do the things you wanted to do and the time that you had for your session were usually incongruent. So I wanted to make something that fit the time constraints of my party, but also fit my interests. If I was going to do anything, I knew that I would do a mystery. So it was all about bending the rules to what I wanted. How exactly did you bend the rules? It was about finding different ways to handle encounters and basing a lot of things off of investigation, perception, and deception. And charisma. Okay. Because those are all the kind of skills that you'd be using as a detective at the scene of a crime. The first thing I did was I told my... My, my players, I told them to roll a character who, that had an interesting nightlife so that I could give them a day job. I asked them pretty much to roll a fun character rather than a stat-balanced D&D fighter-type character. 
which caused them to come forth with really funny characters such as a conspiracy theorist who's also a stoner and a, a drag queen. But during the day, they are the owners of Mystery Agency. Cool. They are detectives that work independently of the law solving crimes. How exactly do you write or plan for your sessions? I think after I have like the idea kind of vaguely of what I want to do, I would write kind of like a news article type, just like a few paragraphs explaining the underlying thing, whoever did it, the crime, and how they did it, and what all the other details are fleshed out in that. And then I could work that into a narrative-based storytelling thing. You have to set up the checks a little more specifically because checks determine whether or not they're going to find details they need or get answers out of people that they need to progress. One, you need to set a range of what they can tell you. And two, you need to make sure there are multiple ways and multiple routes they can take to reach the final conclusion that you want them to reach. Because sometimes their check is not going to be good enough. And if you hinge your entire mystery on whether or not they roll 12 on one thing, you're not going to have a good time. Because I'm a story, because I like storytelling, I tend to write whatever description I want them to have. And then I draw a little arrow on the page that lets me know it's time to give them choice to do whatever they want. I'm not so much hand-holdy to my players as I am hand-holdy to myself with planning. Because instead of an adventure, a mystery, like, all the details need to fit together in a specific way. If you DM too loosely, there's totally room to make stuff up. But if you make up the wrong thing, you could kind of turn it in the wrong direction. There is always one culprit with a mystery there's not so much room for multiple endings in terms of who did it. What is a mystery that, that you've run that you particularly enjoy? Okay, so I think the, the one that I'm the most proud of was my hangover one. The beginning is always the same. I always begin with, welcome back, detectives. It's been a rather slow day at the office. You've filed all your paperwork. So what are you doing to pass the time? It gives them a fun choice at the beginning that they get to make. And then the phone rings. This time the person who called actually was not experiencing mystery. It was their friend, Franny, who wanted to go out for dinner with them. They met and she bought them shots. And then they woke up in a hotel room full of strangers with the TV on. And basically the news report was that there was a string of robberies taking place near where they were last night. And so the two of them had to piece together basically what happened last night. And every time they went to a place, I had them roll a D4 for memory. And whatever they got was a detail they remembered of the last night. When they got to the drag bar, they found one of their items, which they had previously lost, and was broken. It's like an orb camera magic item thing, where they could go back on the footage and see Fanny robbing the place. And they could piece together, oh, we're suspicious from this person from what she did here. Like, she would disappear when they were at places. Eventually, not only did they have their suspicions, but they also had concrete evidence. Finding a way to meld those two together and reveal those in the right way makes a good and entertaining mystery. Once they found that, I hadn't written anything more. I planned nothing more. I knew where Franny was and I let them figure it out. They eventually got to the hotel that she was at. They found out she was staying at the penthouse and I took every cue off of them. They went up there, no one answered the door. I decided if they knocked really hard or started kicking at the door, she would try to start leaving. They kicked the door down, I distinctly remember, and she was out on the balcony trying to climb over it onto the ledge. The drag queen reaches over to pull her back in, but pulls her off the ledge. Because she rolled a, a, a nat one, I had to... So this is and how Fr she fell. And this is, yes, and that's how Franny fell to her death. 
I really couldn't. It was the top floor. I did not expect that to happen. But my players had a really good time, and that was the most creative, I think, that I have been able to get with melding my mechanics with the dice and incorporating that into a storytelling model. That's All good. right. Awesome. Not I think to we're good. Go on for too long. Okay. Um, thank you very much for speaking with me about your games. Mm-hmm. Of course, D&D doesn't need to be so ephemeral. It can be concrete as well. D&D has it put It can out, take place in the physical universe? I mean, you could write it like that, but I mean more like a board game as opposed to just using your imagination. Ah! Right. So D&D has put out board games and other games as well. Officially licensed things and unofficially licensed things. Uh, as far as board games go, there are games that are based on D&D or exist in the D&D world. Um, like adventures that are similar to actually playing the game, like the Castle Ravenloft board game, where you adventure through a vampire-infested land. There are things like dungeon exploration or treasure hunts, things like Dungeon, the board game, or Dungeon Mayhem, which is a card game where you assemble a party using cards and try to hunt down treasure. Of course, there are also extensions of existing games, one such example is Betrayal at Baldur's Gate, which is basically a D&D version of the board game Betrayal at House on the Hill. But who lit what in the what? You and a group of your friends are... Zira? Sure. Let's say you... And Frumpus? And... Nope. Just say that you, Zira, and Frumpus are all going... And Jerry! Got it. Sure. <laughs> you, Zira, Frumpus, and Jerry are a team of sleuths who are going into this abandoned house, which, surprise, surprise, turns out to be haunted. You explore through the area, placing down tiles to create the rooms that you're adventuring in until a haunting happens, and you have to defeat an enemy who may be previously your friend or something else where you're all trying to fight it together. And there's a D&D version of this game that is set in... Baldur's Gate, which is a location in Faerun. Board games aren't the only kind of games that D&D has made, though. There are tons of video games that have come out, so many that I couldn't list them all in this episode, but I just wanted to go ahead and give you some of the top hits. So there are, of course, single-player video games, uh, adventures that take place in the D&D world or use the game's rules. Things like uh, Neverwinter Nights, which is a series of computer games that take place in Neverwinter. And there's things like Baldur's Gate or Skyrim, which is only based on D&D and doesn't exist in the universe, but is inspired greatly along with the rest of the Elder Scrolls series by D&D. There are also simple clicker games uh, which is like a recent addition to D&D games, which are click-based side-scrollers, things like Idle Champions of the Forgotten Realms, which is conveniently on pretty much every existing system, including your computer and your phones now. Now, there are also MMORPGs. Whoa, too many letters. Uh, sorry, it stands for Massively Multiplayer Online Role-Playing Game. Didn't get any less confusing. It's a bunch of people all playing online in the D&D world, taking actions and going on quests in real time. 
And there are different versions of these MMORPGs. There was, uh, and still is, Dungeons & Dragons Online, as well as this, I think, very popular game called Neverwinter. Is Gary Gygax alive in Dungeons & Dragons Online? Is he there? I mean, I suppose... Is that where his soul is? I suppose that somebody could create a character of him, but I don't think that Mr. Gygax is currently inhabiting, <laughs> is currently haunting the MMORPGs of his created game. <laughs> Along with the MMORPGs, there are also arcade games of D&D. These are typically side-scrolling beat-em-up games that focus in on a story or a quest. There are different classes to play. In the original version of the game, it's kind of funny. It used the same rules as in 1E, where the classes actually included races. So instead of being like fighter, warlock, whatever, you'd have fighter, wizard, elf, dwarf, like they were different classes. Uh? It's kind of funny. But um, there are several of these games out. Two of the most popular ones were Tower of Doom and Shatter... And uh-huh. <laughs> Go on. And Shadows Over Mistara. These were what you'd call quarter eater games. They were in certain situations it was very easy to die or they had moments that were designed to kill you so you would end up using more of your quarters or tokens to get through the game. But they were very fun. First time I was introduced to them was in a home version of them that my friends have. There are also mobile games. I mentioned this earlier with Idol Champions of the Forgotten Realms, but there are other mobile games as well, such as Warriors of Waterdeep, which is a progression-style game where you are a group of adventures that you get to choose, and you are basically just battling. It's like a dungeon crawl, but as a mobile video game. What? So there's another type of gaming as far as D&D goes. You sound uncomfortable. Uh, it's, it's kind of the last vestige. It's the last layer of nerdiness that I have not, and I don't think I will dive into. Uh-huh. It's called LARPing. It's live-action role-playing, where... Um, live players or actors take on roles as specific characters and play out scenarios in character. So imagine if a bunch of people like me dressed up like adventurers like you, Aga, and Frumpus and pretended to have adventures. Aww. I mean, that's so cute. Hey. Max and his friends want to be me. Mm, so what? <laughs> Is it because I breathe lightning? It's more because you're just a cool character. Oh, yeah. Okay, but LARPing first appeared in many different places. There's no clear start as to when it came about, but by 1980, it had spread internationally. And then in 1993, Mind's Eye Theater, uh, a gaming company slash theater company, made the first published... That's an odd blend of things you can be... Well, they still run games professionally. 
Uh, they're still existing nowadays, and I think they're on their second or third edition of the game. They released the very first LARP system, which was called the Masquerade. Which- so they have different editions of that. They have different editions of that and different systems to play different types of games. This one is more of like a mystery and vampire involved kind of story. Yeah. So imagine murder mystery theater, but with vampires. So D&D is not only a game, though. I said this a few times before, but this time I mean it literally. D&D can be used as a tool in real life, not just in the game. It can be used to help teach, for example. Imagine that there's a a kid that's having trouble with some basic math in elementary school or something. This child might have a teacher who runs games through D&D and maybe be able to use D&D to teach them math. Big surprise! Teachers are big nerds! Big nerds that help. You're so bullyable right now. <laughs> in fact, Aga, I kind of want to use an in-game riddle uh, with you to help you with a little bit of math. Okay. Okay, so this one is traditionally a three-player math puzzle, but now we're just going to run it with you and me. So let's go ahead and set the scene, okay? Uh-huh. There is a treasure chest that lies beneath the sea. There are two players on their ship that are pumping air down to the third, who is in an ancient diving suit and trying to remove gems from this treasure chest under the sea. The player at the chest has 9d10 laid out in front of them, each on a different number from 1 to 9, to represent the different gems. Uh... It's okay. I'll help you through this. And the players on the ship each roll 1d6 and pass those d6 over to the player that is down below. Now, this player is going to add those numbers together and remove a number of gems whose face value equals the sum of those two d6 numbers. Now, that sounds a little confusing, I know, but once they can't retrieve any more of the gems, they run out of air and must return up. You want to go ahead and try this out? You're going to be the diver. Okay. Okay, we're just going to try this once, though, so don't worry. All right, I'm going to roll 2d6. I got a 3 and a 4. So how much do those add up together? 7. Yes. Now you go ahead and look at the d10s and see which ones you could remove. So what you're saying is there's nine things down below. You give me numbers, and I have to find two other things... That reach the same number. Yes. Or, okay. Or you could take just the added number that you got from those 2d6. So you got the 3 and the 4. Take 3 and 4? Sure, you could take 3 and 4. You could take 2 and 5. Or you could just take 7. Or 1 and 6. That's true. You could take 1 and 6. Mm-hmm. This puzzle I actually took from one of the comic writers over at Penny Arcade. So thanks, Gabe. The game could also help in teaching people social awareness and teamwork, just sort of team building exercises and things. There are certain organizations that are dedicated to aiding children's learning through in-class use of Dungeons and Dragons, having them role play in certain situations 
to help them figure out a writing assignment or math or whatever. You can find this organization at teachingwithdnd.com. That is D, the letter N, D.com. Of course, teaching isn't the only way of doing this. There are simulations that you can run using the game. Uh, you can use the mechanics of D&D to create real-life situations to work through. It's similar to a model UN club or training simulations. But for even bigger nerds. Exactly. Peak nerd. <laughs> so uh, a political science class at McGill University used D&D to teach students skills like political conflict revolution. Revolution? Resol- sorry. Political conflict resolution, negotiations, humanitarian crisis and response, and longer-term development. This was their poli-sci 450 class. That's an advanced class to be playing D&D in. Yeah, when am I gonna when am I gonna get into D and D two hundred one? We'll see about that, Aga. Okay. But first, we're gonna hear from my friend Sarah, who used D and D in a simulation of her own. To do what? You'll find out in just a sec. Ah. I'm Sarah Bryant. Uh, I am a choreography and dance student from the University of Winchester in the UK, and yeah. I just finished up my dissertation uh, module, so um, that's kind of relevant, I guess. So this dissertation, this is what you use D&D for? Yeah, so I used that within like my research and the crafting of the final performance. And within that, like within the module framework, you're supposed to create what is a 12-minute dance piece. Um, it's crafted from your research. So the most important part of the module itself is not the actual final product it's really largely weighted in like how you got there and all of the research you did behind it and mine was obviously um as we've spoken about previously like largely inspired by dungeons and dragons and the framework of of the game itself how exactly <clears throat> did you go about involving dungeons and dragons in your dissertation so I went away and I was watching a, a low stuff online and I came across this one TED talk by um, a professor and his subject is morality. His TED talk really took me because he was talking about how tabletop roleplay games were obviously massive when he was growing up and like that was something you do and you'd sit in someone's basement and I guess obviously people, people still do it now. Yeah. And he was talking about, in terms of his research, how he found it was quite easy when teaching ethics and morality to people. They get stuck in thinking, like, case studies um, and stuck being in this place where, like, well, if I were in that situation, I would have done this differently. Mm-hmm. So he continued to say about how he then took tabletop um roleplay games and made them into ethics simulations and then he would um, present them a scenario um, where in which their country is like under attack or they're facing a certain issue and they have to make decisions and that's where like the nitty-gritty bit about the ethics and morality comes in because you watch people make those decisions and he gets to see them um, really engaging with these questions that you may ask in a case study but it's like something that has like value to them. They have a specific connection to the activity in a way you don't when you just look at case studies. 
I really stepped away from what we were supposed to do. I'm super lucky that my professors let me do it, but I created a 45 minute simulation myself. In terms of what like actually happened on the day, uh, it was that I had 15 participants who showed up um, and at my work, luckily we have this private dining room, which I used and it had like a television screen, which I needed. And when they showed up, they were like greeted by one of my performers because I only had two in the space. So it was like these 15 people and two performers, like one of which just sat in the corner of the room and took notes. Right. She was like a note taker at a meeting, taking minutes in the corner. And the other one was uh, head of the meeting, but she basically was like an AI figure. They could only like ask questions um, and like she could either answer or not, depending on what I had given her as the information they're allowed to receive. Okay. Um, she acted as more or less like my DM. And then they were played this opening address, which was basically me speaking, but in like the most hyper British accent ever, like the Queen's English. Oh, very mm -hmm. posh. Yeah. And they're introduced um, to it that they're there to advise the leader of the country in light of a crisis. So there's a virus that has broken out and they have to save the country. And all the while that this broadcast is being played, there's like a video that is projecting to them like the symptoms of the virus. You get to see like various patients in medical facilities. And then they enter gameplay. The AI figure, um, she basically says to them, you know there's an outbreak and they have this map in front of them on the table that has like red flags everywhere that is infected that they have to add to as the virus continues to break out. And they all get like their own um, set of dice, their own flags to put on there. They get like an information booklet, like a confidential file that has everything in about the virus that they can read. And they, she asks them like, do you want to um, build like quarantine facilities or do you want to advance your medicine? So when they choose, if you advance your medicine, it means you have to roll the die to select how many um, red flags to put on there because like, it advances the disease in the time it takes you to advance your medicine. I hit these points where I had to bring it back into certain things had to happen in the gameplay. So I took the idea of having like an impossible die roll. Mm -hmm. Like they were asked whether they wanted to do something, like there's a security bunker facility. Do you want to go to it or do you want to continue trying to save the country? But it doesn't matter what they say because they still have to roll the die and it's impossible because they don't I need them to not be in the bunker. That choice was a lot taken from the philosophy side of it. I was looking into like determinism and the idea of free will as an illusion. Um, so that determinism states that everything is predetermined. So man could not have acted in any other way, right. even though like hindsight would say, I could have done this instead. Determinism says, no, you, you couldn't have. Mm. So that, that was a lot that fed into like my narrative of like the exploration of free will in that. And D&D right. &D provided the best framework available to be able to craft the game. The die rolls introduced an idea of chance an idea of like ambiguity that they think like anything could happen like and it's out of their control and out of my control mm -hmm. but it's not that in D&D is what we call railroading yeah <laughs> <laughs> well hey thank you very much sarah thank this was you amazing for having me Whew, that sounds like fun but i mean a lot of philosophy if you ask me now simulations and teaching are all fine and good but there is a very positive way of using D&D, &D, which is using D&D &D as therapy. Now, 
D&D can be used in therapy. It shouldn't be a replacement for therapy, maybe just a supplement. Using adventures or situations in D&D to aid in overcoming social issues or trauma through role-playing as a different person. You can create a character that can either deal with one's mental illness or be a mirror to aid in seeing solutions to one's problems. It's, like I said, not supposed to be a replacement, but it can be very helpful. It's also fun. Yeah. Which is often helpful. Yeah. Getting a little vitamin D and a little fun in your life is very helpful. You don't get any vitamin D playing D. Oh. Oh, I don't like that. I realized that in the middle of the sentence. Don't worry. I was going to make a joke about sunlight and how gamers don't get any. Do you want to use this? Sure. Now, Aga, you don't have to worry about my silly jokes anymore because... Because? Um, you're... This is something I've been very excited to tell you, actually. It's sort of your graduation this episode. (gasps) You in the audience, but you, you are... I'm making you and the party second-level characters. (gasps) Oh my gosh. So you're not going to need this podcast anymore, but I was really glad to be a part of it with you. Aw, Max. Don't get so emotional. You're right. Okay. We'll always have the game. We'll always have the game. Yeah, we will. And I can talk about mechanics now. So you're a fighter, Aga. Uh, At level two, you already had access to things like your fighting style, which, uh, what was that again? Great weapon fighting. Yeah, that sounds right. And you had your second wind ability, which I think I you what? didn't know about. No. Uh, that is basically where, as a bonus action in the middle of battle, you can roll 1d10 to add to your health. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this would have been useful. <laughs> <laughs> but at second level, you get an action surge, which means... The soda? No. From your world? No, not Surge, that wonderful, wonderful fizzy drink. An action Surge is basically where you get to take a second action during one of your turns in combat. You can Ah. only use it once per long or short rest, but it is very helpful. It could help you take additional attacks. And at higher levels, when you've got things like the ability to attack twice per action, you'll be able to do a lot. And this is setting you up for greater success. What I'm trying to say is, Aga, now that you're a second level character, I just want you to know how proud of you I am. In all fairness, it was not that hard. No, it was level one. We go only, it only gets harder from here, huh? Yep. Oh, no. But that's the fun. And to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope that this helps you. Now that you can go on to learn about your own second-level characters from somebody else, thank you for listening to D&D 101. It really meant a lot. And if you'd like to hear more from the party, we'll be releasing the full audio from their adventures throughout the summer. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you to Jan Morgenstern for the use of our theme song, Circling Dragons. I'm Max Hendricks. The voice of Zira is Marisa Whitcomb. The voice of Frumpus is Paul Winch. And the voice of Aga is Rita Welch. Thank you, 
And as always. Am I like a pro now? Can I play in the pro tournaments? Am, do I compete with the big dudes? I think what's next for you, Aga, is the Adventurers League. <gasps> Booyah! <laughs>